0: Well, of course, you see the irony of coming to church on the day of rest to get a sermon on the workplace. Um, our text is very short today. It's only one verse from 1 Peter. Um, so, And that is on page 6, and it's also behind me. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What an interesting verse. So let, let's pray. God, um, you have given us jobs and you have placed us specifically in certain workplaces show us from this text and from the lessons we are learning through this series how to bring heaven into the workplace in the name of Jesus we pray amen Amen. the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the regular uh, in a regular 24-hour day the average American spends 8.7 hours in work-related activities And based on my life, that's on the low side. If you talk about getting ready for work, traveling to work, working, and coming home from work, I'm thinking we're talking more like 12 hours a day, realistically. But anyway, uh, the next highest category, but but still way behind, an hour behind, is sleep. And then everything else is like one hour or 1.2 hours. Everything else is a small category. But work is the single biggest uh, category. Uh, And now God has placed all of us, except those who are fortunate enough to be retired or semi-retired, in a special setting to do his work. Uh, The relationships we have in the workplace are vitally important and a ripe proving ground for the gospel. And the gospel produces good lives, good deeds, and glory for God, all in the context of the workplace. So if you turn to your next page, 7, there's an outline that I'm going to follow. And uh, so in our text, it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, and so I want to start off talking about this phrase, good lives and, and good deeds. I want to start with the word good um, because it's not a good and it, it's not the same good that we might find in a strictly moral sense as in righteous. The Greek word there is translated as beautiful, uh, handsome, excellent, imminent, choice, commendable, admirable. Um, and the word lives is really talking about the manner of living, not lifestyle, because you can think of a television program like the lifestyle of the rich and famous. It's not talking about lifestyle, which normally centers on how many vacations you have or how many rooms in your house. Or It's not talking about that. It's talking about the way we live day in and day out. Uh, in other words, if we take that good living with the greek words in it is talking about living a life that's so attractive to other people that when they look at it they say that person has something that i need i need to talk to them about what it is that seems to make them happy or fulfilled or always willing to help people so for good life just for our moment i want you to read godly life now if you haven't uh, come to a point where you have recognized jesus christ as your lord and savior maybe you're on the cusp maybe you're just exploring that whole issue the phrase godly life may have some bad connotations to you uh, as a self-righteous life like the commercial of that lady who used to walk into somebody's house with white gloves on i forgot what the product was and as soon as she walked in she'd run her finger over the furniture to see if there's any dust. Oh, she was a prim and proper prissy, wasn't she? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not talking about that for a godly life. And if that's uh, the frame of of mind that you have when you hear that word, I want you to kind of gingerly hold it and keep your mind open to what the Bible is trying to talk about. Because in a godly life, for example, it may be talking about a faithful and loving husband a grateful, diligent employer, a considerate and generous boss. Those are the aspects in our context that we're talking about. And the first thing we have to understand is that our workplace is a culture. Every workplace has its own culture. And and Christianity is always counter-cultural. It doesn't matter what culture you go to, whether it's Sudan whether it's san diego whether it's maine whether it's france biblical christianity will always challenge cultural precepts uh your work culture will not change the gospel because the gospel is set by god but the gospel can change your work culture So I want to draw a distinction between the gospel to get us started and cultural Christianity. Because when people sometimes think of gospel, they think of cultural Christianity, not biblical Christianity. And I don't want our thinking to be strapped by these concepts of cultural Christianity by which we look at the truths of scripture. So, for example, cultural Christianity, Christians are all Republican. And the gospel is about saving the lost and living for Christ. Cultural Christianity, you do not wear tattoos. And the gospel places your body under Christ's direct government through his Holy Spirit. We don't get into discussions about tattoos. That's your business. Cultural Christianity says don't dance. The gospel says dance like King David. Cultural Christianity says don't drink alcohol. Biblical Christianity, the gospel says drink, but just don't get drunk. Um, Cultural Christianity divides along racial lines. That's why it's often said that the most segregated hour in the country in the United States is from 10 to 11 on Sunday mornings. The gospel requires Christians to no longer regard people after the flesh. Cultural Christianity tolerates idol worship like success like getting ahead those are idols the gospel requires the destruction of all idols so I'm not talking about cultural Christianity I'm talking about the gospel as set forth in the Bible now one of the things that I love about this text and and that you have to pre- appreciate about uh, about the Bible is that it doesn't pull any punches We are told to live a godly life, but Paul lets us know in this text that we are doing this in a hostile environment. I mean, if you look at the text and something Thela said was so perfect, if I could have primed her to share her testimony in light of my text, I would have said, but she already said it, so I don't have to prime her. Uh, It says, look, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the word see, that, um, that they will see your good works, is from a, a Greek word that means to look attentively, to watch, to spy on. I mean, when you walk into an environment and you are a self-professing Christian, you are giving a testimony. Now, it doesn't matter whether you want to do it intentionally or deliberately. You're giving a testimony. And that is unavoidable. And so I said, just want you to know that you are under a microscope when you walk into a workplace as a Christian. But I'm not saying that to give us this sense of burden and oh my goodness you gotta be we gotta walk on eggshells i'm just saying the reality of it that if you are professing christian if people know that they, you are a christian they are checking you out to see if you are real and so part of the hostility of the environment is that you don't have any anonymity i remember growing up in chicago when i was going downtown My mother told me, now remember, you're a representative of your race when you go downtown. I mean, as a black person growing up in the 50s, I couldn't go downtown and dress poorly because that meant all black people dress poorly. Whether I liked it or not, my mother said, you are a representative when you step out. Whether you and I like it or not, if you are a Christian, if you are exploring that as a way of living, you are being checked out as you live. And I've come to the point where I thank God for it. I, see, I do a little bit better when I know I'm being checked out than when I'm completely anonymous. But um, it says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. In other words, you're the object of gossip. You got a target or bullseye on your back, and you may not even... Uh, know it it's like i don't know if any of you have ever read gary larson but he's a cartoonist and a humorist and i i love him because he has a twisted sense of humor and in one of his cartoons there are two deer out in the in the woods and it's hunting season and one of the deer has on his side a bullseye and the other deer looks at him and says man rough birthmark (laughs) And that's what it is uh, when you're a Christian. You get this new birthmark on you, and you got a bullseye on you. Uh, So the good life, though, even though here you are, like Thulla says, you're being checked out, people are making false accusations against you that are not true, they're attacking your integrity when you are, in fact, trying to do a good job. And yet the Bible says that as living in the workplace, our requirement is to draw people in and not push them away. Isn't the natural thought, if somebody's attacking you, is to push them away or defend yourself? I mean, that's just entirely natural. And the gospel says, you know what? With wisdom, bring them in, don't push them away. Because, see, your job was given to you by God. It is God who will promote you, demote you, or keep you in the same place. Now, you can hustle to do these things or not, but God determines where we are positioned in the workplace. I know it looks like our supervisor. I know it looks like our colleagues, but it is God who sovereignly determines how we are placed in the workplace, and he has us there for a specific purpose. So we know that we've got to do these good deeds in Uh, We have to have a good manner of living uh, in the workplace Uh, for a good manner of living. Just some examples. If you're a husband, you don't go to work and gripe about your wife. If anything, you share with other people how wonderful your wife is. Uh, If you are an employee, you don't go to work and gripe about how lousy the boss is. You go to work and you are grateful for the job you have. If somebody else is in the workplace doing a job that you, quite frankly, could do better, you don't undermine that person by letting everybody else know, well, I mean, they did 70%, but you know, my average is 80%. You help that person get from 70% to 90%. So it is a manner of living that is attractive to people. Uh, but if you look at the second point on the outline, the gospel doesn't just produce a manner of living that is attractive to people. It produces deeds that are attractive to people. And it's very interesting that the word deeds in the real Greek, is in the, if it's translated correctly in the, in the English, is business. It's employment. It's what one does as an enterprise or an undertaking. We must be about God's business or employment. And in this case, Christianity is not only countercultural. Christianity is transformative. I want to tell you a little story about one of the members of our congregation, but I promised um, not to to give her name because she's really a very humble person and she's given me fifty dollars not to disclose it (laughs) Uh, this person is in a very competitive work environment and um, right off the bat she will stand out in many ways because there are not many women in her workplace Something happened on the job where um, the uh, hers is a division of a much larger company. Her division got an order from a pornographic company. And this was at a time when their own sales were low. This order was a big order. And not only was it a big order for this one time, but if they did it correctly, they knew that there would be a stream of larger orders from the same provider of pornography. And she was so burdened because her company had never gone down this line, and she went to her supervisor to say, we simply can't do this. And the response was, Oh, I almost gave the name. The response was, it's only money. It's only money. That's another way from a secular standpoint of saying, God is not involved in this thing. We are about business. God is not in this environment. A- and she knew that not to be true, and she prayed, and she pressed the point, and at the last minute just before the thing was going to be produced, they changed their mind, and they... they um by her godly persistence, changed their mind and they declined the order. That person's division is the only one that was profitable in the company for years. When it comes to good deeds in the workplace, sometimes we think of, oh, we've got to do these incredible tasks, It's going to take time away from the family. We already are constrained by time. We don't have enough time for ourselves as it is. I'm I'm just not about doing some huge self sacrificial task. So let me give you five special phrases that can transform the workplace. And these phrases all grow out of the gospel five simple phrases. One, thank you. Two, I'm sorry. Three, I'll help. Four, good job. And five, I forgive you. Five simple phrases. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'll help good job i forgive you those simple phrases if you make a point of practicing them in your workplace it will be part of the thing that will transform your workplace environment i i was looking for something to share in this particular part of the uh outline and i have a friend and i and i remembered him telling me something that he had done and i wanted i wanted to get a sense, if I had remembered it correctly. So I talked to him, and he worked in a very uh, competitive environment. It's what is called a dog-eat-dog environment. You're responsible. You eat what you produce, and so it's all on you. It's no sharing profits or anything. And so he's always under the gun to produce, and oppressed uh, by the issue of the gospel. He decided, and every everybody in his company um, was just a little bit on edge all the time. And the staff people he discerned always felt underappreciated. Part of the eat what you kill environment is that everybody who staff is a non-producer. They are a revenue taker. They're not generating, you're generating the income. And they're taking your income in the manner of overhead. And so a sharpness can develop in the relationship. So this guy, it's kind of funny. There was a uh, uh, coffee cart outside his workplace. And so he went to the coffee cart owner and he said, look, I'm going to pay for the staff people to come down and have coffee, but they have to say this phrase to you to get a free cup of coffee run me the tab at the end of the day and I'll come down and pay it. And my friend's name is John. I'm not going to give you his last name. And he simply said, John looks like Jude Law. <laughs> Trust me, John does not look like Jude Law. And so he sent out an email to the people in the workplace and he simply said to all staff people, if you go down to the coffee car today and say, John looks like Jude Law, you will get a free cup of coffee. He went down at the end of the day, and and he said, not only whatever they had at the coffee cart, he went down at the end of the day to pay the tab, and it was $6. Only two, nobody believed the email. Only two people had gone down, and one of them was his secretary. So the next month, he did the same thing, and he said, last and by now, it was circulating through the office that it was real. And he sent out a second email the next month that says, free coffee or whatever you want, free drink. All you have to say is John looks like Jude Law. And every, all the staff people went down and they got a cappuccino or whatever, whatever it was And the atmosphere in the workplace slowly began to change. People were smiling. People felt good. It's a simple thing. I asked him, how much did it cost you to do that? He said, it only cost me 50 bucks. Now, I don't want to make light of $50, especially we just put three kids to college. Uh, I don't have $50. Uh, In fact, I got a pen holding up the pants in pocket, you know, So, but what I'm trying to get across is that it wasn't some huge, magnanimous outlay of money. It was just a small amount of money done once a month. And what's the purpose of it? The purpose is to soften the hearts of people that just maybe one might come to Christ. So that leads to the third point in my outline is that the gospel produces god's glory because once the gospel comes into a person's life you get a new perspective and that is the perspective of what constitutes a good life and what constitutes good deeds but you also now get a new motivation and that motivation from our text is god's glory now i want to start off by talking about this word pagan because that can be an emotionally charged word and the phrase is live such good lives among the pagans and can you imagine saying that in your workplace well why are you living such a good life it's a well because you're such a pagan i really want to be <laughs> so i know that that word packs a, a wallop in it but the, the bible is very direct but in the actual word in the greek is even stronger the actual word in the in the greek is evildoers <laughs> Malefactors. Mal- um, so and it says in this phrase look live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits with us on the day he visits with us the day god visits with us more accurately reads in the king james version in the day of visitation god will be glorified it says in the day of visitation and that word in the greek is to investigate to inspect the act by which god looks into and searches out the ways of the heart this is actually a positive thing it's a hopeful thing with an implicit warning it refers to the day that people receive the gospel The day that God comes to them and shows them that they are sinners desperately in need of a savior. Because God is glorified when people receive his salvation. The fruit of the gospel is the salvation of the lost. That is one of a great glory to God. Now, there is a worldly view And there is a gospel view on this subject about the workplace. See, under the worldly view, uh, you use people. And you know that everyone resents being used. Under the gospel view, we serve people. It's very hard to resist being served. Most people don't resist it. They like it. Under the worldly view, people are a means to an end. I want this person on my team, they'll help me get forward. I want to push the person aside. By doing that, it'll help me go forward. People are rungs on a ladder, and we climb on their heads and their shoulders to get to the top. Under the gospel view, people themselves are the end. They themselves are the end. Under a worldly view, you look out for number one, and under the gospel view, you look out for others. Under the worldly view, success is the chief good in the workplace. Under the gospel view, pleasing God is the chief good in the workplace. Tom Brady, quarterback for the New England Patriots, was interviewed by Stephen Croft on 60 Minutes. And this is a guy who, by the age of only 28 years old, now I have a son who will be 31 in September, 31, 33. It's my wife's son from her first marriage. I I can't remember the name. Uh, And another son who will be 30 this month. Brady, at the age of 28, had already won three Super Bowls. At age of 28, I'm sorry, three Super Bowls. That's an accomplishment that ranks him with the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he lost to the Denver Broncos in in the 2005 playoff, was the first loss in the playoffs compared to 10 playoff wins in the last four years before this interview took place. But with all of Brady's fame and career accomplishments, he told 60 Minutes this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't all there is. It just can't be because it's not all what it's cracked up to be. And so Steve Croft looked at him and asked, what's the answer? Here's this guy with this incredible success at an incredible age. And not only does he have success, he has fame. That mean, And not only does he have fame, he is very wealthy at 28 years old. And that means between fame and wealth, he's got plenty of babes following him around. From a 20-year-old perspective, it can't get any better than this. And he is saying, if this is all it's cracked up to be, is this all there is? And so Steve Crawford, what's the answer? And Brady says, and I quote, I wish I knew. Now, let me tell you. If Tom Brady is in your workplace, is in your workplace, is in your workplace, can you tell him? Can can you say, Tom, I've got great news for you. This isn't all there is. In fact, this doesn't come close. What is it? And you get to tell that man who has everything in the world and yet realizes that in the, in the essence of it, he has nothing. There is nothing lonelier to, to be famous and to realize that your heart is empty. It's nothing worse than to have all this success and to know in your deepest part that is hollow. because. To whom can you turn to talk about it? They look at you like you're crazy. Man, what's wrong with you? So how is God glorified in the workplace? By you and I going to the Tom Bradys of the world and telling them the gospel. Not your testimony. Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is the fruit of the gospel. But the gospel is that... God became flesh. He came from heaven and lived on earth among human beings and walked and talked with human beings. He healed, he loved, he taught, and then he was crucified for our sins and was raised on the third day and then ascended into heaven with the Father from where he reigns today. Man, that's great news, whether you are a prostitute in India or whether you are Tom Brady playing for the New England Patriots. Romans 2, verse 4, has this great phrase. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. And God will use your kindnesses to lead people to Jesus. It's our love and kindness that leads our relationships closer to Jesus. Our kindness makes people open, open to the idea. Uh, And Satan certainly knows this because we know it's true by looking at its opposite. Satan certainly uses our meanness and selfishness to drive people away from the gospel. So why try? I mean, the the question must arise in your mind. Okay, what if I try and fail? I go and I want to share the gospel with somebody in the workplace and they get that look at you like, oh, come on, dad. I don't want to hear that. What if you're rejected? Here's a quote from Woody Allen. It's from an article in Esquire magazine from 1977. He said, "The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying the terror of it, and it renders anyone 's accomplishments meaningless. I mean, why try I mean I can build a big house, I can build a road, and I'm going to die, and it's all going to be forgotten. So why try? And, And that sense of futility, as if that sense of futility were not enough. I remember when I was practicing law, reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, the most common complaint in the workplace This complaint was the most common, whether one was the CEO or the janitor in the same company. Nobody appreciates me. It's kind of remarkable to think that a, a man or woman making $10 million a year as a CEO would think, nobody really appreciates what I do. And we might understand a janitor saying that. But that was the most common complaint in the workplace. Here's what Paul says to that sense of why try that sense of being unappreciated or underappreciated like tell you one quick story I'm a senior in high school I haven't lived with my father since I was three years old I played basketball and football he never came to any game except one came to one football game we were playing for the county championship the only game he ever came to Sidney Harris was a quarterback I was what they call the pulling guard Sidney went around, left in, uh, pulled back, and he cut to his left. My job was to block everybody coming behind him so that he could throw the ball downfield. And um, so there I am. I step back, pull to the left, and Steve uh, is being chased by three guys. I throw one block, and I knock them all out, all of them. Everybody, including my dad, is looking downfield. Not a single person saw the block. I got up. <laughs> not a single, you understand? Not a single person saw the block. And everybody, and Steve completed the pass. We scored his cut People say, Steve, Steve, Steve. I'm going, damn. I'm not, not Steve, Sydney. Sydney Harris. And I'm going. <laughs> So Paul says to people like me. He says my dear brother stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully. To the work of the Lord. Because you know. That your labor in the Lord. Is not in vain. What a promise that is. I mean regardless of how quote low in social status your job is regardless of how much education you have regardless of what your skill set is regardless of whether anybody else recognizes or values what you do God sees every single act and God in heaven is going yes Way to go. The deck is eternally stacked in our favor. God will reward every right act. So how is this all possible? We know from the text, I mean, if we're honest, we've got to think, I can't do this. I'm going to do it inconsistently. I'm going to mess up i'm more i'm as likely to take two steps backward as i am to take one step forward i'm going to bumble it i won't remember the verse jesus is the only person who perfectly satisfied this commandment. but his death and resurrection establishes two things for us for all time number one because he's risen all things are possible because he is risen all things are possible second god rewards faithfulness over failure when you when you look at it the cross is the biggest failure in the history of mankind jesus said he came to save the lost that he was the king of israel and when he came into jerusalem they were throwing palm branches at his feet hailing hosanna king of the jews and within what 48 hours he's hanging in shame upon a cross with the leaders and the public making fun of him as they walk by going into jerusalem It is such a shameful scene that all his close disciples, the ones in whom he has poured his life for three years, who at some point recognized that he truly was the Messiah, who saw every healing, heard every teaching, saw every leper cleanse, all ran away except John. And his family members, none of them came except his mother. This was a failure on colossal terms. The Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, hanging on a cross while people walk into town to celebrate. And yet, that act is the greatest accomplishment in the history of the universe. By that act, God saves all the lost. So I want to go back to the words of encouragement that we read Um, normally you know we have a a longer scripture and the word of encouragement is just a a verse i flipped it this time my scripture text was one verse but my word of encouragement was a text but this story about the feeding of five thousand should encourage us mightily because jesus looked at the disciples, and he said, what are you going to do? He said, well, we need to feed them. He said, well, you feed them. We don't have what it takes to feed them. We are inadequate. We don't have enough education. I don't have enough training. I don't speak well. And he said, give me, give me what you have. And then he takes it and he blesses it. And he says, now, take what I have given you and just go out and start feeding people. And they fed 5,000, not counting the women and children in the group. So it tells us that we are all inadequate, but Jesus is our adequacy. We are all unable, but Jesus is able. And we will all have Failures, But Jesus is our success. Mind you, I'm not saying Jesus gives us success. I'm saying Jesus is our success. He has done the work when he hung on the cross. He says it is finished. We see this example in the life of Moses. 40 years old. He was tough, strong and ready to lead Israel out of Egypt. And he screws up mightily out of presumption and arrogance and must flee and basically runs from new york city to el centro in fact the backside of el centro and god comes to him and says okay now that you're ready now that you're 80 years old i have a job for you to do and moses says i'm a fugitive i'm a nobody The people won't listen to me. I I stutter. I'm afraid. And God's answer was very simple to all these protests by Moses. Certainly, I will be with you. He didn't say, Moses, you are somebody. He didn't say, Moses, I'm going to make you eloquent. He said, I'm going to make the people. He says, I will be with you. And yet God took this man to lead two million people out of slavery to become a great nation. Phenomenal. No one has ever repeated such an event in the history of mankind. It's never been duplicated, except, of course, by Jesus Christ. Imagine what that God can do through you if you and I will take our few loaves and our few fish and we give them to jesus knowing that he will bless them and then we have him send us out the outcome is in his hands all we need to do is obey and god can use even you and i to bring heaven to your workplace let's pray Father, we are so grateful beyond words for what Jesus has done for us. He is our sufficiency. He himself is everything we need. We ask you, Father, to take us this day. Give us a new commitment to be used by you in our workplaces that by our living, by our deeds, by our new motivation, we can show people and tell people about Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.